Welcome to Blunderphonics, a semi-weekly music podcast where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback. I'm Spencer Faust, actively melting in Western Illinois. Yeah, I heard it's like a thousand degrees in your apartment right now and you're just kind of sweating to death. It's weirdly about 10 degrees cooler outside. You'd think I could solve that by opening a window, but then I think the bugs would have full reign of my apartment. I can't win. I can't win. (laughs) I honestly think you're just covering up because today we are talking about one of the sexiest, funkiest musicians that ever was, and you just couldn't handle it. When I when I put this artist, you know, when I drop his when I drop the needle on his on his records, which I own all of, um, yeah, the <laughs> funk did make me sweat profusely, and I couldn't tell which one was worse, the apartment or the music. So, of course, we are talking about Prince. We were talking about the Beach Boys' smile last episode, and just. Diving into the legend of that heavily bootlegged album, I was so excited to jump into Prince's catalog because he too has some legendary albums that never were. Before we get into everything with Prince, uh, I wanted to ask you, Spencer, what is your familiarity with Prince? I'm a Princeaholic and uh, (laughs) Bat Dance. Bat Dance is about all I need to know, Jack. Bat Dance might be the greatest song ever made. And and the music video is also the best pieces of film ever shot. It's a series of <laughs> Batmen and Jokers thrusting their crotches at each other like nothing's out of the ordinary. Um, now, what I actually know is surprisingly little, I'd say. Uh, despite the fact that I would call him one of the most influential guitarists of the century, Prince to me is more the eccentric personality than the musician. Interesting. I know him more for his actions. Uh, like, for example, the name being changed to the unpronounceable symbol. Like, as I remember it, he was pissed that Warner Brothers wasn't releasing his stuff fast enough. Oh, So yeah. he changed his name to that Wingdings-looking symbol, <laughs> which meant that Warner Brothers now was responsible for mailing, like, thousands of floppy disks <laughs> across the world so people could add that symbol to their font. <laughs> That is exactly right. That is one of my favorite Prince moments ever, just because of how much that screwed over Warner Brothers. We are definitely going to be talking about that particular instance. And it also just makes me wonder, today I feel like it would be a lot easier to tackle, and it makes me wonder why Post Malone hasn't changed his name to, like, the cigarette emoji. (laughs) I mean, nowadays we see emojis so often, I am literally waiting for an artist to just be the laughing emoji. Because it's going to happen. Emojis are so conducive to colorful vinyl, you know? It's just <laughs> make make that the record. I personally am not a huge Prince fan, not because I don't like his music. In fact, what I have listened to, I would say I loved. If it wasn't a near-perfect piece of music, it was a masterpiece, in my oh, opinion. Okay. But I do know that out of his 40-plus albums, I've only listened to, like, seven, and... Like you said, he made a shit ton of music. Warner Brothers didn't want to release all of it. He just was a naturally prolific person in terms of songwriting. Yeah. And there's just way too much to sort of dive into if you're not like head over heels a huge Prince fan. Yeah. But what I have heard, I absolutely love for the most part. Very prolific. Very much an L. Ron Hubbard of music, except <laughs> not a violent sociopath. <laughs> Oh, man. That I know of. Okay, don't don't ruin this for me. <laughs> Anyways, to sort of jump into his history with music, he actually pioneered his own sort of style of music, the Minneapolis Sound, which is essentially funk music with a lot of synthesizers. He pretty much spearheaded using it as like a main instrument along with typical funk, 
rhythm guitars and lead guitars. As you said, he's a super great guitar player, but in his productions, he would rather just use all these different synths to make his sounds just very, very diverse. He would love to just mm -hmm. take all these different segments of genres and just mash them together. Yeah. He first signed on with Warner Brothers Records when he was just 17 in 1978, and pretty much from then until 2002, he would stay with Warner Brothers. But I know we've talked about record labels before. Yes. <laughs> and how usually it's the artist that causes all of the problems. Is it the other way around for Prince? It's a little bit different for Prince. In this instance, it is pretty much the record label that sort of started the tensions and started to make this relationship fall apart. That kind of takes us towards the 1980s when Prince started to get huge. I'm talking he drops Purple Rain and it sells over 13 million copies. It's a diamond selling album. Yeah. Everyone's heard at least half of it. It's impossible to avoid. <laughs> That's a fact. That is a fact. <laughs> I did only know 50% of it before I did my Prince homework today. So <laughs> we have Let's Go Crazy, Purple Rain, the title track, of course. When Doves Cry, which is one of his best songs, in my opinion. Uh huh. Purple Rain is also notable because of two things. One thing is a little fun fact. Purple Rain is the reason we have parental advisory stickers. Really? Apparently, Tipper Gore came home one day to hear her 11-year-old daughter listening to Purple Rain, specifically a song named Darling Nikki. Now, Spencer, do you know anything about this song? No, I've never heard of that song. I've heard of Tipper Gore. Do I get points for that? Yes, you do. If you would please, Spencer, look up the lyrics to Darling Nikki and just read them for our audience. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex friend. No, fiend. Fiend. <laughs> Got it. I knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine. She said, how'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nikki grind. She took me to her castle and I just couldn't believe my eyes. She said, oh my God, <laughs> Jesus Christ. She took me to her, she took me to her castle and I just couldn't believe my eyes. She had so many devices, everything that money could buy. She said, sign your name on the dotted line. The lights went out, and Nikki started to grind. Oh, Nikki. Oh. Come back, Nikki. Come back. Your dirty little prince wants to grind, grind, grind. Grind, <laughs> grind. Grind, grind. Grind, grind. Needless to say, Tipper Gore did not like that song very much. Me neither. I didn't like it either. Did Foo Fighters cover this? Did they? Foo Fighters covered this. Oh my god. Yeah. And Beyonce. Oh, it's a wonderful song, and I'm very happy I have your rendition of it now. Because of that song, Tipper immediately said, we need to stop children from having music. And, you know, I'm inclined agree. to agree. <laughs> I'm gonna say, this is the first time I feel like I've been on Tipper side. <laughs> anyway, that's just a little fun side, but one of the more important things that's tied with Purple Rain is the fact that it came with a movie tie-in. People could go buy the album mm -hmm. and then go watch the movie to watch him perform. Now, I personally haven't seen the movie Purple Rain, but from what I heard, it's a really, really stupid movie, but you can sit through it if you really like to watch <laughs> Prince play guitar. I mean, like, watch the dude play guitar at the Super Bowl in 2007. He's a, he's a 
talented man. <laughs> He's fun to watch him squeal that wood. That's a little bit of context leading up to the year 1987. He had produced albums almost every year, usually trying to tie it in with some sort of movie project. He did have a movie that he directed called Under the Cherry Moon, which was the movie tie-in for his album Parade. And apparently that movie was so bad that it was nominated for five golden raspberries. Oh. And it won Worst Picture, tying with Howard the Duck, one of my favorite movies of all time. A movie featuring duck tits, somebody making out with the duck, yeah. and a giant space alien final fight. Yes, I would wager it's one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> so, needless to say, Purple Rain was pretty much loved for the soundtrack, and whenever Prince would try to do a movie for his albums, it wouldn't pan out. This will come into play in terms of cost, because movies are expensive to make, even if it's just Prince on a stage. Of course. Let's go ahead and start off in the year 1987. 1987 is a legendary year for Prince. He was at the height of his success and his creativity. He was cranking out songs every day. He had multiple projects he was working on. This is not only the year of the legendary Black Album, but there were actually four other albums that he worked on during this time. I knew of one other one. He did four other albums that year? Well, there were five albums he worked on during this time. And out of those five, only one was officially released. Sign of the Times. That's right. Sign of the Times, yeah, okay. Which, speaking of emojis, it is now official that the peace emoji is replacing the O in Sign of the Times. So, that's another fun fact for you. <laughs> it's literally Are everywhere. You, I'm serious. On, is, this, is this a bit? No, it's not a bit. Okay, no, no, you're not lying. You look it up and it's sign, peace sign, the Times. <sighs> Was this always his plan? <laughs> was Prince ahead of his time? <laughs> it was meant to be a peace sign for the O, and when emojis came around, I guess Warner Brothers was just like, okay, yeah, we'll put that in there. Might as well. A sign of the times I, I actually kind of enjoyed because it's a uni there's a unifying theme behind it that I'm used to in my music, but I'm not used to in funk, and that is that Daddy Prince is mad at, <laughs> at the planet. 1987... Prince had come to spank the planet for being a bunch of rude dudes. <laughs> and I wasn't alive then, so I'm absolved of that sin. But I know that my parents suffered Prince's wrath on this album. It's a very politically charged album. It is. You wouldn't believe that it was the Frankenstein of three other albums, would you? I, you know what? I kind of would. I kind <laughs> of would because there's cobblings of a bunch of different genres in there. Like, he's starting to dip his toes into hip-hop, which I think we'll also see in the Black Album. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, the reason why we are touching upon Sign of the Times and some of the albums that led to it is for two reasons. First of all, this is the same year as the Black Album, and I think it's important to talk about these other failed projects to sort of give you a good idea of where Prince was at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was actually contacted by a Rate Your Music user, Uyama Shiranui. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. They recommended that I talk about Sign of the Times. And that's an album that I'm personally a huge fan of. So I was like, well, we're going to do the Black album. Let's go ahead and do both, because I didn't even realize it was the same year. Thank you for the suggestion, by the way. Prince was working on a project with his backing band, The Revolution. He was working closer and closer with his bandmates on making a collaborative piece of music. Usually he likes to do all the instruments himself, and he only brought in people when he felt that somebody else had a better idea for that particular song. But this time he was actively working as if the band was on the same playing field as him. However, during the work of this album, it eventually grew from a 9-track album to a 19-track double album, and the more he did music on it, 
the less he wanted to work with the band. He would end up just doing songs himself, bringing in other people without the band's consent. He would not even look at them during tours and during live shows. He would pretend they didn't exist. Oh, this is going from Kevin Shields to like <laughs> mildly psychopathic. He was also in a very committed relationship with one of his bandmates' sisters, which did not help tensions at all. So eventually, Prince would just dissolve the band entirely. He would end up firing two of the most prominent bandmates, Wendy and Lisa, and they would go on to do their own stuff. And essentially, the revolution just completely disintegrated. Mm -hmm. The album they were working on was called Dream Factory, and it was shelved because Prince just thought it was over with. So he decided, hey, I want to work on another project. It was going to be the first one in a long time where it was just Prince at least that's what Warner Brothers thought. Prince went to Warner Brothers and said, my new album is not by me. Warner Brothers was like, excuse me, what are you talking about? He said, I want this to be published under my alter ego, Camille. Prince had been experimenting with speeding up his vocals to make him sound more androgynous and even feminine. And he said that he wanted to be a female singer-songwriter, and he wanted this album to be released with absolutely zero connection to his name of Prince. He wanted it to be like a new singer-songwriter just came out with her own album. Damn. Damn, Prince. Going hard mode. <laughs> Presumably, he then took another hit of MDMA and waited for the applause from Warner Brothers for his amazing idea. And, and they said, what the f what the fuck are you talking about, Prince? How are we supposed to market your record if you don't want to be called Prince? And he's like, well, it's not me. It's Camille, my alter ego. <laughs> this album, believe it or not, did receive funding and got as close to being mastered and actually pressed before it was canceled. There is no known reason for its cancellation, but I have a feeling it has to do with Warner Brothers not knowing how the fuck to promote it. Yeah, really. And they just said, Prince, this is fucking crazy. Stop being a woman and just be you. You are much easier to market than a fake female. Prince was left with not only a double album that failed, but he was also left with a lot of material where he was pretending to be a woman. And he's like, you know what? I could make a triple album out of this. I have some other songs that I have just laying around. Let's make a triple album and call it Crystal Ball. Now, Spencer, mm -hmm. how many triple albums have you heard of? Does that does that weird Green Day thing count? <laughs> no, that does doesn't that... count. <laughs> no. Okay, then none. That's cheating. There's a reason why most people haven't heard of triple albums. I know the double album is uncommon, but the triple album is unheard of primarily because nobody wants to listen to that much fucking music from one guy. For real. Yeah. I, now, I personally have listened to some triple albums that I absolutely love, and I've even listened to some double albums that I would consider masterpieces. But they could have just been one album, even the triple ones. I mean, you look at something like George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. Mm -hmm. He was a Beatle that was writing very interesting songs near the latter stages of the band's career. And John Lennon and Paul McCartney wouldn't let him release more than two or three songs an album. So he said, fuck it. I'm going to release a triple album and just unleash it on the world. But even that album, one of the discs was just a jam session that could have been completely axed. Yep. You would lose nothing from it. And most of the time, triple albums are just too costly. Yeah. That is pretty much diluted in quality because of how many songs are on it. It's just a mess. And Warner Brothers knew that. Warner Brothers, once again, told Prince no. This is the second time that Warner Brothers pretty much explicitly told Prince, this is a bad idea, we can't do this. First it was Camille, and then it was Crystal Ball. They said, if you want to release a double album that's pushing it, 
but we'll accept that. But no, none of this triple album shit. So Sign of the Times was kind of cobbled together from Dream Factory, from Camille. That's why Prince's voice is a little bit higher in some of the tracks. I was wondering. I really was wondering because I, I knew you said that and I was like, I don't know if he actually put some of Camille into this. He definitely did. So does that mean that there are some songs where that androgynous voice is there and some where it isn't? Yes. There are, I believe, three songs where it's explicitly from the Camille project. Yeah. And I'm certain if there are any others that weren't from it, he would continue to experiment with pitch shifting his voice, pretending to be other people anyway. It was my first, like, big, you know, sit-down exposure to Prince, so I really couldn't pick out every once in a while when the voice would change. Because he naturally has a higher-pitched voice anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it already sounded on brand with Prince, so I was like, oh, okay, he was younger. Sign of the Times is essentially a Frankenstein of those failed albums. Even though Sign of the Times was released and it was a commercial and critical success, people still love finding bootleg copies of these songs. And there are tons of bootleg versions of Dream Factory, of Camille, of Crystal Ball, and people trying to figure out what those albums would have sounded like if Prince 100% had his way. Mm -hmm. Now, I personally am completely happy with those albums getting shelved if it meant that he was going to grab the best of the best and make Sign of the Times. This is Prince sort of being told what to do by Warner Brothers, and he's getting a little tired of it. When Warner Brothers goes to him and says, hey, everyone's loving Sign of the Times, it's selling really well in Europe. Can you go do a full United States tour? It will really push some copies since it's a double album, we'll be making double the profits. And Prince said, eh, that sounds stupid. I would rather make another album. <sighs> and they're like, seriously, can you just do a couple shows? He's like, no, no, I'm ready to record some more. Oh, God. Okay. I, I get it. It's like, I, I hear a lot of musicians say like, oh, when you're touring, you'd rather be in the studio. When you're in the studio, you'd rather be touring. But like, Prince just wants to be in the studio constantly. Despite how much of a massive stage presence the dude has, he still wants to be in the studio. And it's like, just flex it, man. You're one of the best <laughs> stage person. Just flex it. He was so into the studio that around this time, he had over 400 unreleased songs That's... just sitting in his famous vault god that is too much he would rather just keep creating and releasing new music for people to appreciate rather than dwell on what he's already made so as a compromise he said well i like making movies and the war brother said oh fuck <laughs> he's like let, let me make another movie we'll call it sign of the times and that will play in theaters instead of me actually performing live but that went to theaters and nobody saw it Almost the same day it went to theaters, it was quietly shuffled out. So, after that, Sign of the Times is getting a lot of critical praise. People are saying it's wonderful, it's his best since Purple Rain, but he was not without some of his critics. Oh no, Descent. Who were criticizing Prince for releasing gentrified music. He was releasing music that had no more funk in it. There was nothing African-American, nothing black about it. He was selling out. He was going mainstream. Okay. Yeah, funk's been colonialized. Okay. For the first time, Prince thought to himself, maybe I should do something to appease the critics. Maybe I should go back to black. So he had the idea of making this very raw, very funky album, and he would release it without his name on it, without a title, just nothing but a black sleeve. And it was called The Black Album also known as the Funk Bible. He was going to bring Jesus back to funk. He's... <laughs> funk's, funk goes God again. <laughs> Ironically enough, it was actually a secular album. He was doubling down on the sexual lyrics. He was doubling down on the darker lyricism. 
and it was way more raw than anything he's ever made before. He was known for having very lavish productions. This time, he was going against that. Yeah. And this album was recorded. It was being made, and it was being shipped to stores. 500,000 copies, half a million, were pressed and released to music stores. And then a week before the album was supposed to be officially launched, Prince said, Wait! (laughs) Stop! We need those albums back! And Warner Brothers and all the music stores were like, What the fuck? He said, It's evil! I've had a spiritual awakening! I'm assuming he was on MDMA during this. <laughs> but he was like, that album is literally evil. Where Rose is like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's cursed? He says, yes. He says that during his recording, when he was trying to be Camille, Camille let him be possessed by a demon. And this demon didn't have a high voice. This demon had a deep, low voice. And his name was Spooky Electric. Spooky Electric. That is a that is a color on the Crayola color wheel. All right, continue. He said that because he was trying to channel Camille through him, Camille used his body to summon Spooky Electric to make this evil album that was against God. Prince said, I have found God again. This is an evil album. People cannot hear this. This is not who I am. That was made by a fucking demon. Jack, I don't know which stage, making the album or this awakening, is more (laughs) drug-induced. I don't know, and that hurts me. What I find even stranger is that Warner Brothers actually did recall the album. For real? Why? Why? I don't understand. You've already shipped it. You've already made... It's... Why would you pull it back? I'm surprised they actually did it. Yeah. Honestly, I wish I could just say at that point the album was removed and nobody ever heard of it. And it just existed as this evil thing that Prince once shat out and then he wanted buried and flushed down a toilet. But... It wouldn't be nearly as legendary if that happened. Through some sort of tomfoolery, about a hundred promotional copies were circulating through Europe. People started making their own versions because they heard, oh shit, Prince wants this hidden. I'm gonna start selling it on the streets. Yeah, there were a lot of, I mean, looking at Discogs right now, there's 103 versions of this album. There are not that many original copies left as far as I know, that are in circulation whatsoever. There were some that ended up in America, and apparently through these 100 or so promotional copies, the album became a worldwide phenomenon. People started talking about this album that Prince didn't want you to hear, and it was like a race to see if you knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who could give you the funk Bible, give you your own version, your own copy. Your own haunted relic. (laughs) Your own spooky electric mixtape. It just blew up. It became known as the next smile because of this. It was this mystery that you could only find if you knew somebody. It was hip to have it. Yeah, yeah. And I wish that this album was only known from a very few select people who knew somebody and that it would eventually be unearthed when the internet came around and it ended up on like Napster and people would eventually get to hear this legendary album. But once again, that's not quite what happened. In order to make up for his sins that he committed on the Black Album, Prince would go on to make the antithesis called Love Sexy. No, I thought it was gonna be Bat Dance. (laughs) (laughs) Which was way more poppy and way more lavishly produced. Spencer, I would love for you to look up the cover because it has probably one of the most uncomfortable covers I've ever seen. Well, well, shit. (laughs) (laughs) He's a beautiful man, isn't he? Yeah, he's quite a beautiful man. 
I'm confused why this is the consecrated album and the other one was the demon album. Like, this is almost worse for me. <laughs> Strangely enough, despite that cover being very lewd, that was a much more religiously aware album. Prince was in a much more positive headspace. He found his way back into religion. And for the lead single, Alphabet Street, during the music video, for a split second, he even put in a secret message that said, don't buy the Black Album, I'm sorry. Oh, good lord. Hey, by the way, if you wanted uh, to get your hands on an original, one of the original half a million copies of the Black Album, I can only find one listed for sale for $38,000. So, you're better right. off with the bootleg. <laughs> you, well, that's the thing. The original copies still sell for a lot of money, but it's mostly due to the legendary status of the album being recalled. Yeah. The album would eventually see an actual release. Yes, 1994, right? Seven years, almost to the day. I think it's about a week off from when it was initially released. And the reason behind it is a little shitty. We need to talk a little bit about Batman before we get to that. <sighs> yes. Yes! <laughs> Tim Burton went to Prince and said, hey, could you do a song or two for Batman? And Prince was like, oh yeah, I got you. I'm going to do the song for Batman. <laughs> Not only that, he wanted to make an entire album dedicated to this movie. Oh yeah. And Warner Brothers was like, okay, that's kind of a big deal for us, making an entire Batman soundtrack being just you. So we'll let you do it, but you have to give up your publishing rights. Mmm, okay. So he didn't make any money, as far as I'm aware, off of the Batman soundtrack. And I'm assuming this was the beginning of the end of him really appreciating Warner Brothers. I'm sure he felt that they were stealing money from him just because it was for one of their movies. And since it wasn't explicitly him, he didn't get any profits. So when the 1990s roll around after Batman, Prince was saying, I have all these songs. I have 400 plus songs that I would love for you to just keep releasing at a steady pace as quickly as possible. And Warner Brothers put their foot down. They said, Prince, we do not want to oversaturate the market with your music. We don't want you to devalue your name because you just keep pumping out songs. We needed to have some sort of quality control. So no, we are only going to release albums when we feel like a Prince album is going to sell well and you're just gonna have to deal with it because you're under contract. <laughs> and that royally pissed him off. And he starts sketching out what would come to be known as Love Symbol number two, I'm assuming. Yes, he would release music under the name Love Symbol. It was pretty much an unpronounceable symbol, and he would be called the artist formerly known as Prince, or the artist. Yeah. And he was basically saying, fuck you guys, if you're not gonna let me profit off my own name, I'm gonna give you a different one to deal with. Something that I actually feel like is my own. And he released the Love Symbol album, and it didn't sell even close to as well as anything else he's ever done. And he blamed Warner Brothers because they didn't market it right. Well, it's kind of hard to market an unpronounceable thing. Right. Especially when it's by Prince. It's the same thing with Camille. They would rather promote it under your name, but you're not letting them use it because you don't go under it anymore. Jack, I gotta be honest. You're trying to pitch this to me as not your typical studio and artist relationship, but Prince is uh, kind of antagonizing the label to an extent. Exactly. Like the publishing rights thing, that's shitty on Warner Brothers' behalf. That might have been pent-up revenge for the Camille shit and I want to do all of Batman. I kind of see it as Warner Brothers trying to make money off of how much they give Prince to essentially shelve albums or have crazy ideas. Yeah. 
And this was sort of them being like, okay, we need to make some more money off of Prince. And yeah, it is a shitty thing for them to do. But yeah, Prince is going under a completely different name. And when it doesn't sell as well, he blames the label, even though he's the one that made it almost completely unmarketable. Throughout the 90s, up until 2002, whenever Warner Brothers wanted to release an album, he would just shit one out, purely out of con contractual obligations. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to give them music that he poured heart and soul into just for them to make a profit off of it. So he would just shit out these albums. And that's kind of the main reason why I haven't listened to more of him is because I know a lot of his music after Bat Dance, it was pretty much him just fulfilling obligations. During this time, 1993 is when the love symbol came out. Because that underperformed, Warner Brothers said, we need to have a Prince album because that's going to make money instead of this love symbol shit. And that is why they re-released the Blackout, because they could market it under Prince. They slapped a sticker on it that said Prince, the legendary Black Album, really harped on the legendary status. Yeah. And they said, hey, if you have any bootlegs, mail it to us and we'll give you a free copy of the real deal. Really? Yes. They only did that for about a thousand copies. I was about to say, there's no way they did that for half a million. That's just... <laughs> the postage alone will bankrupt Warner Brothers. The fact is, this legendary album would eventually just be released so Warner Brothers could make some money off of an artist who was retaliating against them. And part of me is really disappointed in that. It kind of deflates the whole legendary aspect of the album when it was essentially just re-released to get money from Prince fans at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. That is the Legend of the Black album. It doesn't have any sort of wonderful resurfacing like the Smile Sessions. It wasn't lost for years and then all of a sudden it was unearthed after Prince's death. It just sort of came out of nowhere so Warner Brothers could make some money. It was pretty much just them making a quick buck. Before we get into how we felt about the albums, you mentioned how one of the original copies is selling for how much again? Uh, God, it, it's anywhere from like 3,000 to 38,000. The album actually broke records in 2016 on Discogs. It was sold for a record-breaking $15,000. 15 grand, seriously. Then later in 2017, Five more copies were unearthed in America, and one of those sold for $42,298. Just... And as far as I'm aware, that's one of the highest prices I've seen for a music purchase too ever. Too much money for what we're about to talk about, and for what, an eight-track album? <laughs> exactly. Compared to Sign of the Times, it's a very, very stripped-down, minimal album, which is very weird coming off of all of his other music, which is so much more lavish. I know Sign of the Times is a little bit more stripped back, but it is not nearly as minimal as the Black Album. Jack, I just real quick need to mention one thing in my in my research. I've been digging into some of the most expensive transactions on Discogs, and I cannot believe this is even within the top 20, but I think its eccentricity alone merits mentioning. Um, 1080 Snowboarding Original Soundtrack for the N64 uh, sold for $340 on vinyl. What? <laughs> the, the original vinyl pressing of the 1080 Snowboarding N64 game sold for a little under $400. That just sounds ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's completely insane. It's completely <laughs> insane. Also, Black Album is, without a doubt, one of the highest selling albums on this list. In fact, it's number one. Sold for, in 2018, a copy sold for $27,590. I believe somebody in Canada was like, Oi, I found one. <laughs> hey, Jack, is that what you think? <laughs> can All right. That's Australian. Hold on. Direct it Time all out. to him, not me. It's not my... I didn't do that. <laughs> it's fine. I'll make it sound like you said it. I'll edit it in post. <laughs> yeah, just... No, just speed it up. Make it sound androgynous. So, Spencer, we got to talk a little bit about Prince. 
and this very tumultuous year in music. Spencer, we listened to both Sign of the Times and the Black Album. Mm -hmm. What did you think? Well, I've kind of touched on my, uh, I've kind of touched on Sign of the Times. It's a, it's an album about how Prince is mad. He's mad at all of us. We've done him, we did him dirty. Uh, but also he does still love us because we are sexy little demons. But Black Album is aggressively funky. It's like Sign of the Times didn't get it all out. So he's still really angry at us. One of my favorite takes on this album was a YouTube comment that just, it just said three words, uncut nasty funk. And I love that because I have no idea what it means. It sounds like scathing criticism, but like I know it's not because that's a funk thing. You can say a it's bunch- It's raw and it's dirty. You can say mean shit and if you follow it up with funk, it's apparently a compliment like disgusting festering funk. Have you heard of my wretched funk? <laughs> Is Cindy C about Cindy Crawford? Can we just start with that? Yes. It is. Yes, it is. It is a very sexually charged song about him wanting to bang Cindy Crawford. Jack, we can't call anything sexually charged after what you made me read. <laughs> this was tame. <laughs> this was a this was a second grader's Valentine compared to that. Also, YouTube called that one raw orgasmic funk. Just thought that was another good three-word funk description. I think oh the God. drums of Dead On It successfully kicked a hole through me. <laughs> yes, could you tell that Prince listened to some hip-hop? Yes, that that's what I was talking about earlier when it seems like he really dipped his toes into hip-hop. Um, when two are in love, uh, first of all, love that he's starting to name these like it's AOL, Instant Messenger. He's done that for a lot of his songs. He really liked doing that. That song felt like an apology for how hard he just drummed through me on the last track. <laughs> I liked it. It was nice. That one would end up on Love That Sexy. was his one holy reprieve before Spooky Electric took back over him. <laughs> Bob George is haunted. <laughs> it's not what music is supposed to sound like. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a guttural snarling sound effect that it, in my opinion was always offbeat it felt like mm -hmm. so like I'm never ready for it it just felt like a tiger was hunting me while I'm trying to enjoy Prince's evil mistake is there like a demon that's calling me a bitch every other yes, bar it's spooky electric that's spooky electric <laughs> okay now I, I actually don't know if that is canonically speaking, Spooky Electric. I think Prince, before he took his drugs and had a mental breakdown, I think <laughs> yeah. the idea was he was just pretending to be a music critic who was calling Prince himself a bitch. He took the name Bob George from one of his old managers and from a music critic who I am assuming said that he wasn't black enough. And he just mixed it into this awful guy named Bob George. And he would just say that motherfucker with the high voice. And then he just starts shooting Prince at the end of the song. There was a police shootout, it sounded like at the end. It was a... Jack, that was a hard song to get through. That scared me. It was 10 a.m., the sun's shining through my windows, and I'm still bone-chillingly cold, Jack. Yeah, the Black Album is full of songs that I would consider... Haunted. Shocking for the sake of being shocking. Oh, no, Prince is talking about fucking this lady. Oh, no, he's now a guy shooting himself. And my least favorite, Dead On It, is just not good. He's making fun of hip-hop, and that's pretty much the song. Yep. And then he would go on to be like, wait, I actually listened to Public Enemy, and hip-hop actually is good. I'm stupid. So that song just irritates me to no end. Hypocritical, but yeah. Yeah. Considering Sign of the Times is just an absolute masterpiece, and I love that record, and I love everything Prince does on it. Going from that to the Black Album, considering he made them within the span of, like, several months, kind of boggles my mind. 
mm-hmm. just a little bit. It's dirty ass funk. The back half of the record just gets strange, in my opinion. Maybe not the whole back half. I feel like it's really two songs, Bob George and the second to last track. I don't even know if I can really, in good consciousness, say the name of it. The one before, Rock Hard in a Funky Place, which, by the way, perfect title. Wonderful title. Great guitar solo. The lyrics are all they need to be, which is just saying Rock Hard in a Funky Place over and over and over. (laughs) I'll just call it West Comp. Along with Bob George bothers me. It just sounds like two songs fell on top of each other and nobody noticed, and they just pushed it to press. (laughs) I think the reason why you feel that way is because this album is very much sort of entrenched in a genre called New Jack Swing. That is essentially a very rhythmic, funk-based hip-hop beat. Okay. And it's supposed to kind of sound like the beat is all over the place. Yeah. Michael Jackson really dived into New Jack Swing after Bad. So if you ever heard some of his later works, it's very similar. And I am personally not a fan of that style at all either. It really does sound like there isn't much going on other than a drunken sounding beat. Yeah. In the background. Exactly. And I think my last hot take, super funky, califragisexy, number one, just the Cali makes me think that the, the Chili Peps should have jumped on this one. Oh my god, the Chili Peps are should, back. They really should jump on a cover of this one. And number two, I think Disney is still posthumously trying to sue Prince for this one and can't figure out how. That is my complete <laughs> Black Album review. Ladies and gentlemen, come back uh, in two weeks for whatever the hell else Jack's going to make me talk about. <laughs> so Jack, where does where's the Prince story go from here? He would go on to be a very successful independent artist. He actually won an award for utilizing the internet to sell one of his albums as early Mm -hmm. as 2003, I believe. He would eventually rejoin with Warner Brothers after a 10-year split. I actually haven't looked it up because honestly, there isn't much else to say about Prince because the poor guy died in 2016 after a fentanyl overdose. Yep. And unfortunately, we are not going to be able to hear much else from him. I know he has a vault of music, I don't know if the rights are under his name or if it's under Warner Brothers and they're just waiting for a more complete like box set where they release everything or what they're going to do with it. I don't know if those rights are going to fall to one of the 700 people that claimed that they were half siblings of him and are divvying up his uh, multi-million dollar estate. (laughs) Maybe maybe one of each of those claimies gets a song. Right. Like I said, I haven't been that huge of a fan of his, so mm-hmm. I didn't really keep up with him when he was alive. So unfortunately, I'm not as well aware as to what is in the works. The last thing I remember is his version of Nothing Compares to You. That eventually got released, but I don't know if there's anything new for him, maybe. And Spooky Electric might come back. Spooky Electric might still be haunting the vault. It's possible that's why it was sealed forever. Oh, I lied. There is one kind of new thing related to Prince. Oh. The Revolution, his old backing band, actually announced that they would do reunion tours after he died. And one of their newest songs was featured in the Netflix comedy Wine Country featuring Amy Poehler being a middle-aged woman who goes to a wine country with her Saturday Night Live friends and roll around on hills. So, Spencer, is there anything you would like to plug before we call it quits for today? Anything I would like to plug? Okay, guys, there's this album I found. It's by Masayoshi Takanaki. I think I might have gotten that wrong, but um, he's a Japanese jazz guitarist uh, going back to like the 70s. He has this album called The Rainbow Goblins. Look it up. It is about, it's a concept album about rainbow goblins that eat colors and they're going down to the rainbow valley to eat all the colors and occasionally this sweet jazz album is interrupted by an awfully voice acted british boy who (laughs) tells us this saga (laughs) 
It is a masterpiece. I would if you if you're going to experiment with drugs, why not make this your inaugural <laughs> sampling? I remember when you recommended this album to me, and it completely took me off guard. It is a wild record, and we really wanted to talk about it, but we can't find any information on it. I don't think there is a story to it, or I, at least not that I know of. If you, if anybody, if there's an informant out there. Please, you know where to find me. <laughs> I have a podcast called The Cock and Bowl. It is a is very much like this show, a little bit shorter each week. Not even, not even that. I can't keep a schedule because I'm melting to death up here. <laughs> yep, history podcast. It's a fun time. I would recommend it. Next time on Blunderphonics, we will be listening to something a lot less sexy. So Spencer, stop sweating to death. <laughs> Catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.